Hello, Great Minds. It's Tuesday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to talk about a few people that just so happened to die on the 4th of July. So happy Independence Day, everyone. Yes, I managed to get an episode recorded and released not only on time, but on a fucking holiday. Mrs. DGMH just happens to be out of town, so I didn't have much else to do. Of course, this isn't just Independence Day, this is the chaser to Zombie. I had to put some thought into what we were going to cover. My first thought, Jamaican maroons are fascinating, but too similar to what we discussed with Palmares. My second thought was Tomei D'Souza, who I mentioned in the episode and I have discussed in Patreon, but again, that was just more Brazil and Portugal in the 1500s. My third thought was the abolition of slavery in Brazil. Certainly dark and serious for a holiday. Of course, I also thought about those Confederate shitheads that fled to Brazil during Pedro II's reign and all the hillbilly Portuguese that they begot, but I just wasn't feeling it. My last thought, unsurprisingly, was something tied to independence, and I ended up building on that. So, for today's topic, I wanted to do something related to freedom and independence, but I didn't want to recycle too much. I wanted something light, something fun, something that isn't, you know, depressing. Then it hit me. Death. That's right, we are going to look at a few famous figures of U.S. history that you may or may not have known died on July 4th. And this is certainly a Dom Test episode. And you may ask, what is the Dom Test? I always try to make this point with an episode. I know that some of you that listen to the show will be like, oh my god, everyone knows this. Well, that isn't fucking true. Some people are not obsessed with history. Some people are learning history as they listen to this show. The Dom test is simple and in no way an insult. I ask myself, would my dad, Dominic, know about all the stuff that is going on in this episode as someone that really didn't study history? If not, would they enjoy learning about this for the first time? Will this be one of those topics that he calls me about and says, what the fuck, did that really happen? Honestly, it's a moment I truly enjoy. So as a quick reminder, this show is for everyone, not just history nerds and history snobs. I will try to sneak some new history points in there, though, for you guys, too. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me. It's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. So like I said, for some of you listeners, this is going to be one you probably know a lot about. But for some, it might be one of those what-the-fuck moments. I mean, who knows? But today, we are going to chat about a few founders of the U.S., John Adams and Thomas Jefferson first, and one other who we have also chatted a bit about. Now, Adams and Jefferson rose through the revolutionary ranks together, Adams certainly a bit older than his political companion, but not much. Alongside Franklin, Livingston, and Sherman, they authored the document that Americans celebrate today. Of course, I have already talked at length on the Declaration of Independence. Luke and I have chatted about Adams, and I spent a fucking month discussing Jefferson. But as the pair aged, both men would serve in Washington's cabinet, more or less, serve as vice president, more or less, and eventually serve as president of the United States, certainly more than less, being the first to represent each of America's first political parties, Federalist and Democratic Republican, respectively. In all this, and the mess of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, the dynamic duo fell out of friendship. It was not until their later years that their friendship rekindled via a well-known and well-read series of letters. The pair lived in distant friendship through their old age. They talked of John Adams' loss, his son's presidency, and so much more. As to today's story, however, it is a short, very finite tale, as both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died within hours of each other on the exact same day, and you can probably guess what day that fucking was, the 4th of July. 
Now here is where we overlap with the Jefferson episode a bit, as Jefferson's death has certainly been discussed. The bone-chilling, spine-tingling moment of the story, however, is that the pair died within hours of each other on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence that they co-authored. Jefferson went peacefully at Monticello, living a life full of achievements, evils, and debt. He was our nation's most idealistic hero, our most incessant hypocrite. My favorite version of events is that TJ seemed to live on till the fourth arrived, almost by choice. Adams certainly spiced up the drama of the story by dying just hours later and saying in some of his final words, at least Jefferson survives. Sorry, John, that was not the case. Jefferson had died just hours earlier. Adams, who died at age 90, was actually the longest-lived president ever to serve until he was surpassed by Ronald Reagan more than 150 years later. I always love telling this story to my students, after their studies on the Revolution, who certainly had no clue, but I also always wait until they've learned about the Monroe Doctrine. Why? Well, as some of you may know, Adams and Jefferson were not the only founders to die on the 4th of July. That's right, President James Monroe, the third of the Virginian dynasty of Democratic-Republican presidents, also died on July 4th of heart failure, just five years after Adams and Jefferson. All three died of relatively natural causes for someone in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. But by some mix of crazy fuckery and badassery, three of America's first five presidents and founders decided to up and die on the celebration of the independence that two of them authored, three of them won, nurtured, and protected. Knowing and sharing this story still gives me a bit of a chill. The ideals, hardships, and the spirit of the revolution are cemented in the declaration that we in the U.S. celebrate each year. But the American Revolution was not a bloodless act, nor was it complete or perfect. But you know what was bloodless? Brazilian independence. And since this is the chaser episode to a Brazilian subject, Zumbi, I figured we'd keep on that independence train and talk for a quick second on Brazil's own story of independence and what is called the bloodless revolution. Obviously, the story of Brazil's independence from Portugal is complicated, deserves more than a paragraph or two, and brings up a cast of characters certainly worth examining. It is entangled in the mess of the Napoleonic Wars, Latin American independence movements, and the history of Uruguay, and of course, the tragic horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. And somehow, it goes down in history as the Bloodless Revolution. How? Well, let's start in 1807, when Napoleon Bonaparte continued to invade Iberia, and the Portuguese royal family decided it was in their best interest to flee to Rio de Janeiro. So, as Queen Maria, the future King Zhao VI, and nearly 10,000 courtiers fled their country for one of their most successful and distant colonies, they initiated a series of events that would spawn a truly unique independence movement. So keeping this short, the royal family lives in Brazil from 1808 to 1821, notably for six years after Napoleon's fall. Really, the Duke of Wellington's success in the Peninsular War should have brought the Braganzas home, but they did not rush back to Portugal. Why? Because they fucking loved Rio. Brazil turned out to be way better than they could have ever hoped. Not only did the royal family love it so much that they refused to leave, but they actually also elevated Brazil to the status of a kingdom of the Portuguese Empire, essentially making it more equal to Portugal itself. And so the United Kingdoms of Portugal, Brazil, and the Algarve were born. It would survive but 10 years. Even more interesting, Prince João was actually crowned João VI in Rio de Janeiro. Historian Dean Warren outright said that this move, quote, represented the first step toward Brazilian independence. By 1820, the Portuguese Cortes or government body, now in full control again after Napoleon's fall, had basically told João VI to come home now or come home never. So he went home to Portugal, leaving his son and heir, Prince Pedro, to lead Brazil in his place. But when the Portuguese government began demanding that Brazil return to its former status of a colony, giving up its kingdomship, I guess, the people of Brazil resisted. 
Prince Pedro refused demands to return to Portugal at the request of thousands of Brazilians in what is known as Dia de Fico, what would loosely translate in English to Stay Day. In his speech known as the Fico, Pedro proclaimed his intent to stay in Brazil and promised for all Brazilians independence or death. In his speech, he said, quote, Friends, the Portuguese Cortes wished to enslave and persecute us. As of today, our bonds are ended. By my blood, by my honor, by my God, I swear to bring about the independence of Brazil. Brazilians, let our watchword from this day forth be independence or death. Pedro was proclaimed Emperor Pedro I of Brazil on his birthday, and really the Brazilian Empire's birthday, October 12, 1822. However, the continued story of Brazil's unstoppable path to independence is one I plan to finish at a later date. So for now, I will leave it there, with a quick note on Brazil's independence on the anniversary of my country's independence. But in all that, I may have left out one more thing, another presidential death tied to the 4th of July. That is the tricky one that is easy to miss, Zachary Taylor's death on July 9th. What? That doesn't make sense, I thought we were covering deaths on the 4th of July. Well, really, we kind of are. So Zachary Taylor was one of those presidents that I always enjoyed teaching for the five-second honorable mention that he got in the curriculum. I mean, seriously, in America too, you don't spend much time on the Mexican-American War or his role in it, and he was a president for a hot 16 months. But in those 16 months, he exhibited true badassery worthy of many a great mind on this show. Showcasing one moment, he expedited California statehood in 1850, pushing through admittance to the Union as a free state. That is a state that would not allow nor ever be open to slavery, forever upsetting Henry Clay's balance created and initiated by the Missouri Compromise. Now, I always thought that both plans were ass. The Missouri Compromise is unquestionably ass. But the Compromise of 1850 is a little bit different. It came with a terrible clause that gave Americans the Fugitive Slave Act, the fucking mess that begot slave catchers who would legally seek out and re-enslave runaway enslaved Africans. Of course, they also used this law as an excuse to enslave freeborn Americans. My point, Zachary Taylor kind of fucked up there. Except he didn't. Like I said, he was not a president that I had much time to research beyond the tale of his death as a sort of fun fact, but the 30 minutes I spent researching him for this short episode did turn out to be worth it. You see, the Fugitive Slave Act was not his doing nor his failing. No, that fuck-up belongs to Millard Fuckhead Fillmore, his Veep who became president following Taylor's death in July 1850. Taylor, on the other hand, had a very different opinion. When threatened with secession in 1850, he responded with these carefully chosen words that those, quote, taken in rebellion against the Union, he would hang with less reluctance than he had hanged deserters and spies in the Mexican-American War. Like I said, badass, but he went and died, and that all went to shit. Fillmore's fuck-up, not Taylor's, but we're here to talk about the final death on the 4th of July, at least by proxy which is apparently my favorite thing to say this season, by proxy. You see, after celebrating the nation's independence, Taylor walked along the Potomac and retired to the White House. Hot and exhausted, he was said to have gorged himself with a bowl of delicious cherries, some iced water, and a large glass of milk. He took ill and died five days later on the evening of July 9th. His doctors claimed his death was the result of an outbreak of cholera morbus, a type of bacterial infection which was determined by his symptoms of cramping, diarrhea, nausea, and dehydration. Coherent till the end, however, some of his last words were to his wife when he said, quote, I have always done my duty. I am ready to die. My only regret is for the friends I leave behind me. But it turns out it wasn't quite that simple, as there were several other suspicions regarding his death, some in the day, some much later. Yes, some have argued that it was the excessive cherry consumption that may have led to self-induced cyanide poisoning, but most denounce this theory. 
That is, that Zachary Taylor may have accidentally poisoned himself by eating a bowl of cherries and consuming some milk. Wait, that's possible? Yes, it turns out, I guess it could be. The pits of cherries contain trace amounts of cyanide, which, when consumed in large quantities, could be, I guess, dangerous if you like to chew and suck on the pits of cherries, but I don't know. Either way, that story's been since dispelled. However, it was not the only poison theory to come about from Taylor's death, as some suspected foul play and possibly arsenic poisoning. In fact, his body was exhumed and examined by a modern medical examiner, modern-ish now, in 1991. This study proved that he did not die from arsenic poison, but instead gastroenteritis, possibly excited by the unclean water of DC or maybe even unpasteurized milk he consumed. For more on the exhumation of Zachary Taylor and Clara Rising's research, just investigate her study. I don't have time to go into it or say more on it today. I have celebrating to do, as do all of you, but I will be sure to post a link at some point. Well, that's it. In our would-be season of poisonous deaths, we have an episode where everybody seemed to die of natural causes. So, if you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, where people died on the 4th of July, then let me know on Twitter or Instagram at DGMH History or on the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast Facebook group. And be sure to leave the show a great, hopefully, five-star review wherever you listen. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more DGMH, then I hope you'll consider supporting the show over on the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to all sorts of bonus content available to supporters of all levels. From bonus last call chats from your favorite Psych and Shots episodes, to extra moments with Mr. DGMH and Cullen, plus what I'm teaching, Cullen Chats China, Pete Chats Portugal, Washington's Words, another moment with Mr. DGMH on the 30 Years War, and pregame episodes where we catch up chat history and answer listener questions. So as we wrap this up, I want to wish all those in the U.S. a very safe and happy Independence Day and extend a celebratory nod to all those that live in the ripple of America's Declaration of Independence, a truly global document, if you ask me. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, they all died on the 4th. It's strange all the shit that happened in U.S. history on the 4th of July. Maybe the energy is just high on those days manifesting these curious events. The first two deaths are certainly the most interesting part of the story, but Monroe's just adds to the strangeness. Taylor's tale is certainly a new story for the show, and a good one for the 4th of July, I'd say. And hopefully you got the basic gist of Brazil's initial independence story. At least the first wave of it. Of course I have been celebrating the 4th since the 2nd, as any good historian should. Then and now, I celebrated the 4th with a couple of whiskey sours garnished with 2-3 to cherries. Not too many, and certainly pitted. Just to play it safe. To close out this episode, I am doing a shot of Scatterbrain's Dark Cherry Vanilla Whiskey, again if you can't, because you know, the cherries, why not? No rating, I mean this stuff's sweet, but it isn't bad. So today we raise a glass to a hopefully cheery, but cherry-less Independence Day. Happy 4th of July, everyone, and cheers.